And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us for a little bit of a <clears throat> little bit of a special edition here. Uh, don't typically put out recordings midweek, but you know I think there's a lot going on to justify this. And I know that I've received a bunch of emails and texts and phone calls from family, friends, mostly clients, listeners, uh, especially the last two weeks. And it really culminated today. People scratching their heads going, wait a second, Zach, I thought high inflation was bad. And yet the markets are rallying like there's no tomorrow. So, um, you know, these are the times that try men's souls. That's probably overstating it. But um, a lot of confusion out there. And and some of it is, you know, I, I can sympathize. And whenever we get in this situation, there's one guy we call. He's been on uh, with us a lot more regularly in recent months for pretty obvious reasons, at least to me, the macroeconomic uh, backdrop here. So when I, the minute I say macro listening listeners to this show, probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And we're joined today by Mr. Chase Taylor, a Pinecone macro research chase that first of all, thanks for joining us on set short notice and uh, glad to have you with us again, pal. Yeah. Happy to be on. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, so l- let's come right out of the gate. We were talking about this a little bit off air, and we t- talked about it this this morning too. Um, <clears throat> I, I, saying I'm surprised it would be an overstatement because I'm to a point where nothing would surprise me in these markets. Uh, but I will tell you, a little bit interesting to watch this market uh, <laughs> throw a party because inflation expectations were at 8.7 and they came in at 8.5. Um, what, what are you, a, I mean, just what do you make of that? Um, and quite honestly, Chase, before we even really get into the macroeconomic picture, let's take the economic hat off and just focus at markets. Um, now the move doesn't surprise me at all. I know that you and I are tracking the exact same channel on the NASDAQ. So the action doesn't surprise me at all because this is now pushing right up against the, the, the top line of that channel. It, it technically broke through today, but I mean, not in a st- statistically significant way. So I, I, I think we're still in that in that range. Um, I am a bit shocked by the <laughs> by the backdrop that has preceded and fueled this run, especially on the tech side. Um, and and the number one thing I'm and again, we'll start just by looking at markets. What the market seems to be thinking at this point is that the worst of inflation is over and we're just going to get things back to normal. Is that, is that a fair read or do you think the market's signaling something else? Yeah, I think, I think at the moment the, the most important thing is the market is not particularly concerned with growth, but it's very concerned with inflation. So obviously inflation is high and it's bad, but anytime you get something that is getting better, the market's just going to, it's just going to, latch onto that and it's going to run with it. So the fact that inflation was better than expected today, that that was enough for the market to say, Hey, cool. Like, let's go. Um, and as we talked about before, like it, that, and the fact that like a lot of people are short, a lot of people are bearish. So that's like kind of a perfect combo to get a little bit of a, a squeeze, like ramp the way we did today. Yeah. it It's just, I, you know, this is what markets do and you and I are used to it. And this is especially the irrational moves that we've seen over the last three years. I mean, that's, that's really been what it is. What is amusing to me now is that the market is higher than when we were getting six and a half percent inflation prints and we got eight and a half. 
Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, the market is now, or the NASDAQ specifically, is 22% higher than it was when the Fed raised another 75 basis points. So it almost seems like valuations are expanding as conditions get worse. Um, I guess that's probably the market forecasting or looking through and thinking the worst is over, which they could be right. Um, I still really have a tough time. Have you looked at earnings recently, Chase? Do you have any numbers on earnings for the S&P in the first two quarters of this year? No, honestly, I don't I don't personally pay a ton of attention to earnings because I don't think the market cares about earnings (laughs) as much as we all think. I think, you know, today would be evidence of that, Chase. Yeah, and a perfect perfect example is all the meme stocks. Like those made sense from a macro basis because you had a lot of liquidity and uh, you know, the, and you had low inflation at the moment, and now you have high inflation and low liquidity. So that makes those kind of things make less sense. But the, the way I see it, the, if the market doesn't care about earnings, I don't care about earnings. So I don't pay a lot of attention. That's not to say I don't pay any attention. Like obviously, in the long run, they matter. Um, but I think. But I, I'm a macro analyst for for a reason. That's because I think macro moves markets more than more than earnings. So I haven't paid a lot of attention. Um, plus, plus there's just so many games in earnings, like versus estimates. You know, all I got to do is bring the estimates down, and then they look great when they beat them. Um, there's been a lot of that. I, I think uh, earnings growth has been kind of normal recently. Um, looking out in the future, it's kind of leaking lower if you if you look at the numbers. Um, so to me, earnings are kind of doing what they're supposed to do, but I think more broadly, like the market realizes inflation has probably peaked, but what I think the market does not realize yet is that growth has not bottomed. I think, I think the action you're seeing today is kind of like a, Hey, inflation peaked and growth is bottoming. Um, so let, like, there's no reason to go down. I think that's kind of like what's driving the market. And personally, I think the inflation part's right. I think inflation has peaked. But I think on the on the earning or the uh, the growth side, growth still has a long ways to go down, in my opinion. So I think that's that's where markets are getting it wrong, and and that's where when when the hard data comes out, the macro data for the next I don't know, call it six months, that that's where the the market's going to have to make some adjustments. Yeah, <clears throat> in this ba- this goes off of a because in my opinion, and I just want to lay this out so all listeners know what we're looking at. Um, if you guys have been listening to the show, you know I am very much in the bear rally, uh, bear market rally camp. Um, I think you know the, one of the things we're looking at is I think you got the 200-day moving average on the Nasdaq, and it, you guys will hear me citing the Nasdaq more specifically. I don't know what you're looking at, Chase, but and it, and it makes sense to a certain degree. Uh, but I feel like the NASDAQ is much more representative right now of what's going on in the markets than even the S and P 500 is. Um, it seems to be adhering to technical levels in, in a more, uh, uh, uniform fashion, at least, at least from our outlook. Um, and I think it also represents the most overheated part of the market. So I think it's the best gauge for investor sentiment, um, you may agree or disagree, and I'd love to hear if you do or not. What we're what we're always trying to figure out when we think that there's a bear market rally is we start trying to focus on and you know focusing focusing in on where we could be wrong. Um, and you and I had a great conversation about that, and I wanted to because if this is if this is just a bear market rally, um, 
based on valuations and where we're at, I, I think this market's going to get a lot uglier in the next 12 months. Um, what I'm trying to wrap my head around is trying to understand the bull thesis. And everywhere I look, and, and this is in sharp contrast to March of 2020, right? People go, well, what are you talking about? It looked horrible. Yeah, and the Fed was also dumping what, $3 trillion into the system and buying corporates and buying everything that wasn't bolted down and even buying that too. Um, So it's a starkly different thing. I look around and I still, despite the market, the NASDAQ now rallying 21, 22% off its bottom, I don't see any economic signs that things are getting better. Uh, The only thing I see, Chase, and I know you wrote about this recently, and I'd like to hear, hear you expound on that here, The only thing I can see that there's any legs to is how people are constantly pointing to labor markets, labor markets, labor markets. Well, is there a more lagging indicator than labor markets? And it seems to me that everything that is forward looking is all pointing in the same direction. And it's really not close. It it really looks ugly, does it not? Kind of walk us through what you think the market is holding on to, you know, what your thoughts are on the labor market, kind of sum up what you wrote about in that last newsletter and then... Um, where, where, what are we looking at as far as leading indicators? Am I correct that everything is pointing the same way and it's not the same way that the market's been moving recently? Yeah. Leading indicators are all really bad, especially when you look at the soft data, like kind of survey, uh, survey data from whether it be small businesses, manufacturers, like pretty much you name it. And, and we're, and this is like data that goes back, uh, some cases like 50 years plus. So really good track record of kind of looking at that versus, you know, the economic cycle. These things have, have worked, you know, my whole life. Um, what, so that whether it be something like the ISM manufacturing index or the NFIB um, small business uh, indexes that come out, they, they ask all kinds of questions to small businesses. Um, and if you look at regional fed data, you know, what, whether it be out of Richmond or up in New York or, uh, Dallas, like th- they put out tons of great survey data. And if you look at all that stuff, whether it be the current data or a lot of them ask questions about, Hey, what's, what, what do you think about in six months from now? Um, the, the data for right now is really bad and it pretends a lot of problems coming up. And then, but if you look at like the, the month, the six months out data where they ask questions like, Hey, how do you think your orders will be in six months? That stuff is like catastrophic. A lot of it is like the worst it's ever been in, in history. And like I say, some of this goes back 50, 70 years. So, um, so all, all the leading data there, all those leading indicators are, are very bad. Um, if you look at, you know, the yield curve, which tends to kind of let you know the way things are going to go, it's been a, a shockingly good predictor of recessions in the last, call it post-war, since World War II. Which indicator is this again, Chase? Uh, the yield curve. So yeah, the, the, the difference between the, the two-year treasury and, and the ten-year treasury, this, the yield on those. Whenever that inverts, and and the two the two years actually yielding more than the ten, which seems weird, and because it is, whenever that happens, then that tends to predict a recession. And it's even better recession predictor when it's the three month versus the ten-year. Um, that hasn't inverted yet, but it's it will very shortly. It looks like. What's um, the three-month yield at right now? Let me look. But yeah, in general, like all all of these indicators, when you kind of roll them out forward, they're they're ugly. Three the three year is at three point one five percent, and the ten year is at two point seven eight. So it's got wow. a lot of room to go there. Yeah, um, 
Oh, so that was the, the three year. I was, not, I was thinking three months. Yeah, no, the three th- month is two point six one. So it has wow. thirty bips left before it before it inverts thirty basis points. Um. So yeah, and and that has collapsed in in the last about like two or three months. A lot of people were saying, yeah, well, a lot of the yield curves look bad, but hey, three three month tenure looks fine. And then it just completely fell off a cliff in the in the last like six weeks, which tells you like, hey, the Fed's kind of in the market's opinion at least uh, it, it's over tightening. So. All, all these kind of growth metrics I look at that are looking forward, they all look bad. And obviously, I mean, we're already in a technical recession. We've had, you know, two two quarters straight of of negative real GDP growth. But if you look kind of look at the the actual economy and all the indicators that the eggheads look at for whether or not we're in a recession, we're not. But most of that stuff is either is either starting to go negative or it's at least slowing and looks like you know it's on trend to go negative. Yeah, what are some of those indicators that are positive? I mean, outside of I hear everybody keep. I was I, I was just in a client meeting, and again, feel free to clean this up for me because they were they were talking to me about the the jobless numbers, and and I just said, look, when is unemployment the lowest? And they go, well, at the peak. And I go, exactly. I go, when it, when does unemployment reach? When is it the highest? And they go at the bottom. And I go, exactly. So, by definition, right job or jobless claims, unemployment rates are all significantly backward looking. Um, what are, you know, that, and, and feel free to clean that up, that explanation up again, this is your wheelhouse on the macro side. Um, but as we're looking at the outside of just the yield curve stuff and, and I hear you, I understand, you know, what that pretends for the market. I get it. My only concern about looking at yield curves right now is that central banks have, uh, you know, to say their fingers on the scale, I think is is like the inverse of hyperbole, right? Their whole body's on the scale and they jump on it on a regular basis, right? So the yield curve, it's hard for me to put the same value on it as we have in the past, what other economic indicators are pointing solidly downward? What, what, what do you think, you know, is there any other things outside of the surveys that really caught your eye? Yeah, I mean, just when it comes to like the, the hard data, the stuff that's kind of like now instead of looking out into the future, even like retail sales. So retail sales are still positive for the most part, but, but they've leaked a lot lower. And, and a lot of that positive is, you know, the, just the fact that inflation's high. So if you look at it on a nominal basis, they're doing okay. But of course, of course, nominal sales and nominal earnings are doing well. And you asked me about earnings. So like a lot of people have been shocked because earnings are holding up, you know, reasonably well, but that's nominal. Like when you have eight, nine percent inflation, of course, like your nominal sales are like, they're doing okay because they, they have, they kind of have 9% baked into the cake, you know, before you even start counting. So that, that's the sort of the case whenever you look at like retail sales. Um, but well, Chase, at this point, because, it, it, again, if you look at a lot of the earnings reports I'm looking at, like, for instance, if you X out Apple's – and it wasn't ugly, but if you X out Apple's currency hedging, they had a 3% reduction in revenue. And and that's that's not a disaster, but I'm just saying I'm looking at earnings, and the more I dig through them, I am seeing consistently eroding margins – I'm seeing a much bigger percentage of companies coming in light and a lot of these companies adjusted downward, right? So them missing and yeah. them missing Q2 numbers, even if it's a bear, a, a, a small miss, it's coming off numbers that have been revised downward previously anyway. 
and, and we're just now starting to see the inventory spike in the retail side, and we haven't even seen kind of like the, they haven't had to like, you know, slash prices and put stuff on sale to get, to clear inventory yet. So it's coming. Whenever the whenever the retail side has to start marking down prices in a meaningful way, like that 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 has a, a big earnings impact. It has a big inflation impact. You know, kind of across the board. Um, but go, going back real quick, you, you kind of asked me and I, and I didn't answer it with, with what I wrote last week was. I think this is important for listeners to understand when they're trying to kind of wrap their head around what the Fed's doing, how inflation's working. Is so, like like you said, what they're looking at is inflation, and they're looking at jobs. Both of those are lagging indicators. Those are sort of byproducts of what we did. Call it a year ago. It, it can be anywhere from like nine to eighteen months, typically, but just say a year ago. So the policy of the year ago kind of created the conditions of today, just like the policy of two years ago created the the conditions of a year ago and what policy does today really can't move this stuff today but it can move it like a year from now so the way i phrase it in in my last letter was the the fed is kind of looking at stuff that they did you know a year ago and they're fighting it with stuff they're going to do a year from now and that and and instead of like thinking about the way things will be in a year they're staring at the data for today so if you're fighting a two-year-ago problem or a year-ago problem with a year-from-now solution, but while staring at today's data to get feedback on how well you're doing, obviously, like that doesn't add up, and you're in, and you run the risk of screwing up. So this is how they, this is how they got inflation wrong. Whenever they were creating, you know, all this inflation with with zero percent interest rates, with printing trillions of dollars, with uh, the government, you know, handing <laughs> handing out trillions of dollars. And they were just staring at today's data, that day's data, and they were like, "Well, inflation's not high yet, so we're obviously nothing's wrong." But the reality was, like, they were kind of, you know, obviously creating the conditions for a significant inflationary problem. Well, today, they're increasing interest rates 75 basis points at a time, and they're just staring at inflation and jobs, and they're like, "Well, nothing, everything seems fine. Like, we can just keep going." But it's it's the same thing they did when they created inflation, except kind of the opposite, where. Now they're going to hurt growth really badly, but because growth isn't collapsing today, because jobs aren't collapsing today, inflation isn't collapsing today, they're just going to stare at today's data and be like, oh, well, it's not working yet, so let's do more. Um, They're sort of like leech doctors, you know, from back in the day. Like, well, if it ain't working, you just need more leeches. Right. Um, And the problem is when they add more leeches, like that that creates, last time it created an inflation problem, I think this, this next time it creates a growth problem because... There's that inherent lag in their policy. The the other thing that you and I got into a little bit, and this is one that <clears throat> I wouldn't say it's the biggest, but I think it's the one that I've spent the most time pondering. Um, and and I think the reason is is because of the experience of the last ten to ten to thirteen years, which is no matter what macro winds were blowing, they were always usurped and, for lack, pardon the pun, trumped. Uh, by monetary policy, right? Um, I've kind of come to the point in my career where I view monetary policy as a, you know, a, a mute, if you will, to macroeconomic effects, right? People go, well, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, well, if growth is too low and inflation isn't where they want it to be, what do they do? They just use the money supply, right? So I, I think monetary s- policy is synonymous with like financial anesthesia, right? It's It's just... It's it's you're masking. I mean, the reason you need to step in, especially on the cutting side, and you could say this with inflation. The the reason you're trying to do this is you're trying to mute or blunt out normal macroeconomic trends. Right. I mean, that's that's 
that's what it is. Now they're they're going to argue against that because they know what they know what the macroeconomic trends should be, right? <laughs> so they're they're trying to get them to where they should be, which is really interesting calculus. I'd love to hear them break it down for me. I'm, I'm I'd probably be a bit disappointed, uh, <laughs> to say the least. But um, the thing that I've really wrestled with is, you know, I, I think the thing that pretty much everybody in the in and maybe there's somebody that doesn't agree with this, but pretty much everybody in economics agrees with is that when you lower interest rates or you stimulate in any way, shape, or form, that really you're pulling forward demand. Um, when I look at the stimulus and in, in, in policy in every way, shape, and form of the last two years, I don't know that there's ever been a greater pull forward in demand in history. Um, meaning, you know, we were joking about it, but, you know, if, you, if your goal was to have three, you know, G.I. Joes with Kung Fu grips— you bought them in the last year and a half. If your goal was new Xbox, new Jordans, fill in the blank, you bought them in the next, you, you bought them in the last year and a half. Use STEMI money, use PPP money, whatever. Um, I, I just don't see how you come out of this with inflation anywhere close to where it is. Another interesting one I saw the other day was student loan payments by and large come out of deferment in September and October of this year. Um, I, I just don't see how you don't have a massive consumer air pocket coming up based on what's taken place over the last two years. You know, for instance, I, I, I remember people being surprised at the last quarterly announcements when Weber, right, the barbecue maker, announced results. And I go, guys, what did you think? Did you think people were going to buy a new barbecue every year? Right? Like, if you needed a new barbecue, picnic table, sound system for your house, you bought it. You're not buying it again next year. You're not buying it again this quarter, right? I mean, is there any way out? And, and that's the thing I keep, again, I know what my thesis is. So I spend the most, and I know you do the same. You and I talk about it on a regular basis, but I spend the majority of time trying to figure out where we're wrong. What I can't see through and I cannot come up for an answer with is, okay, maybe certain these indicators are going to be better than expected on the margins. Maybe this, maybe that, right? Okay. How do you not at least see a significant pullback in consumer spending over the next year, inflation or not, just based off consumer behavior? I mean, right, if you if you wanted it, you bought it, didn't you? Yeah, I agree. I think you mentioned a couple of names. For me, one that's a, that's a poster child is Trex, which they, they build like composite decks. Yeah. Um, that's something I got long during COVID for obvious reasons, and then something I wanted to short and didn't really capture much of the downside. But it it's still down 60% and it's barely up off its lows. They just reported uh, like I think this week or last and it was, it was brutal. Um, Cause the same thing, like if you wanted a deck, you probably got it during COVID whenever you were getting stimmies, not, you know, it, now's not the time for that. Um, it, hey, you mentioned Jordans. I bought two pairs of Jordans in the last year. So there you go. Um, so did I for a while. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Mine were golf shoes, but either or, well, I bought my daughter a pair of regular Jordans, but that was for her birthday. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's an agree. It's, and, and that's one of the reasons that I think, you know, whenever it comes to, like, actual goods instead of services, uh, you're going to see a yeah, kind of a continued slow meltdown, um, especially whenever the, the labor market does finally turn. That That's when, you know, consumer spending kind of really falls. Um, and, and on the services side, that's where we're seeing a lot of demand right now, and you're seeing a lot of inflation right now. But obviously, on on that side, you you can't get you know no one's getting six haircuts a week, and uh, you're not gonna get like drink twelve coffees a day unless you're you know 
unless you're me, I guess. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so that that side kind of is gonna gonna calm itself down as well, especially when you think about like leisure and hospitality. Yeah, you know, once the summer's gone and people realize that their their bank account isn't as good as it was a year ago, I think a lot of that spending kind of washes out and then that's when you kind of see retail sales especially on the nominal basis when inflation starts coming out uh retail sales like especially in q4 i think become a problem i think employment and, and retail sales become a problem in q4 and that's when like this cute like negative one percent growth thing can become a negative three percent growth thing and that's when you know all, all these companies have to take a hard look at at their bottom line and and, and what they're doing and and earnings become like a real problem, and that's obviously going to be a come, become a problem for valuations. I, I, I would think, anyway. Yeah, I mean, we, I, yeah, it'll be. I we we were joking about it this morning in the office, and somebody was saying, "Could you be?" You know, we were having this "could you be wrong" thing, and they were saying, "Well, what about this specific?" And I kind of stopped them, and I said, "Look." We can always be wrong. It's one of the things that I have learned in 16 years of managing money. Um, and I've been wrong several times. And it's why we approach things the way we do, right? Which is trying to figure out where we're wrong as quick as we can. Um, but everything you look at, just, you know, like we said, that consumer spending air pocket, um, you know, refinancing is not going to be a source of liquidity pumping into this economy in this market for the foresee- for, for the foreseeable future. Um, the other thing I think about is people like, oh, well, the Fed's going to pivot. That's why we rally. And I'm like, hey, guys, how bad do things have to get on a macro or even just a, you know, just domestic economic level um, for the Fed to pivot hard in a meaningful way? You yeah, know what I mean? I feel like... And cutting are two different things. Right. And I'm just sitting there going, guys, it it's going to have to get pretty nasty for these guys to do an about face. I mean, just, just, just the human aspect of them. I'm not trying to pick on these people, but they're panicked right now about inflation. Now you and I have a good laugh about that because we were sitting there saying this was coming a year ago. Why they don't, like you said, they just follow the models. They're looking at data. And I mean, sometimes it can be as obvious as smacking you in the face and these people aren't going to act. But you know, I mean, how much credit, like for instance, if they flip back to cutting hard 90 days from now, like will, will they have an ounce of credibility left? I mean, I don't think they can do that even on a policy, you know, just, just policy wise. I mean, wouldn't that just be a horrible erosion of the, of their credibility? That That's the first question I want to ask you. And then B, how bad would things have to be to do that? Yeah. So I'll start with the second one first. And, and, and the answer is really, really bad. And I think growth is gonna going to be really bad, but I, I still think you know it takes them a lot of time. So I, a lot of a lot of my money's been tied up in Eurodollar futures, and so I've watched that curve a lot. And just for for listeners out there, all, all that is is basically a market that it's just like gambling on what the Fed's going to do at the end of the day. It's just a way to, to bet on what interest rate policy is going to be in the future. And if you look at that, what it, what it's saying is like, hey, they're going to tighten really hard this year. And then maybe even early next year, they're going to start having to cut That's because everyone believes they're going to blow up growth and then they'll have to start cutting. That makes me uncomfortable as someone that's, that's kind of long that stuff because I, I think they're going to really struggle to cut unless things are really awful for the, for the reason you just said, kind of the credibility. I mean, it's not like, it's not like just like three people at the Fed or just the chair 
have gone out and you know really staked themselves on being really really hawkish. The the people that we all thought of as the 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 most dovish people at the Fed have all just completely 180 into being just just hyper hawks. I mean, talking trash to the market, you know, for the last six months. So for them to for them to really pivot, it's can it really happen at seven percent inflation? You know, like I I, I would I want to say no, and, unless inflation or uh, unless growth is is falling off the cliff to the point where you know uh, unemployment rates seven percent, you know real fast and it's just looking ugly um that that's different but i don't think it'll be you know anything's going to be kind of that that bad so the chances of them being able to to pivot all the way to cutting quickly strikes me as no what i think they'll do is you know moving forward they'll probably raise a, a little less than we all expect um and then they're then they'll pause and but that pause can last longer than I think a lot of people think. That all these pivot people that think they go back to cutting, I, I just don't. I don't see it really working out that way. So let's say they get to three percent and they just they kind of hang out there. To me, short term, three percent is kind of restrictive. Like that hurts the economy. The economy is not okay with three percent, and growth will will have a, have a major problem at three percent. So if they pause there for long enough, that that will do damage. We'll have you know maybe a year long recession, something like that. So. I, none of that's really particularly great for the market. If inflation and growth just kind of keep keep driving themselves lower, like that's not what the market wants. Especially if they're not getting kind of a, a new round of liquidity from the Fed. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is that I again, I'm just I don't know that I've ever had a harder time wrapping my head around the market because all of the all of the bullish arguments. And again, I want to pay him credence. That you know we're. I mean, we're net long right now, but but we're we, well. We've been unhedged for the last three weeks. Um, we put on hedges again yesterday and today. That's the first time we've hedged up. Um, and just full disclosure, we're about flat on the year, not not where I'd like to be, but um, you know, I'll take it overall. Um, but just trying to really wrap my head around this bullish argument, and like I said, there seems to be so much circular logic. And I'll give you a couple examples of what I mean. Um, inflation coming is coming down. That's good for the consumer. And you look at them and go, but you just told me the consumer spending is really high. Right. And you go, well, yeah, but, but inflation coming down is good for the consumer because uh, you know, they'll buy even more. And I'll be like, well, if inflation is the singular driver of this whole thing, then inflate, then consumer spending wouldn't be good right now. And, and I know I sound circular right now. People listening to this, are, what is he talking about? I don't think that this spending has anything to do with the state of the economy. Right. I think consumer spending has to do with the fact that people still have a bunch of stimmy money. And specifically now during the summer, this is a this is a summer vacation that's been delayed now for two years. Right. A lot of these summer vacations were paid a year ago. These people aren't going to not go out. Right. They're not going to. My, my whole thing is I think that what you're seeing, I don't think that consumer spending represents real strength in the economy. I think it represents the sugar high of the economy coming off on lockdown and stimmy money, you know, seeing the last effects of that continuing to flow into the market. Um, you know, you hear people, well, if inflation comes down and rates pull back, that's good for tech. Well, not if their earnings are dropping. You know what I mean? Like it, there's all this suck. There's all this secular. It, it's it's. It's almost as if the market doesn't believe that there's a macroeconomic event happening. This is all just monetary policy. You know, the, the Fed is fully in control like they've been in for the last 15 years. But I'm sitting there saying, hey, guys, you just printed 8.5 percent inflation. That would lead me to believe the Fed's not in control. And do, 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 does that resonate what I'm saying? 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely understand what you're saying. Um, I, it, it's tough. I, I think, I think we're we're just in a situation where the market really just got oversold and is and it's bouncing and it's bouncing hard, because um, it's kind of well timed with like, hey, well, inflation is peaking out. Like every, everyone just thinks like everything's going to kind of go back to normal. And and my take on this is like the the average person is like, oh yeah, maybe we'll have a recession, but it'll be like you know negative one percent like for maybe a quarter or two, whatever, like it'll be fine. And what I'm seeing is, is just worse than that. You know, we're, we're at a point right now where the labor market has not like had a real problem yet at all. Uh, so I think that having a problem all of a sudden that, that would change everything. So all this stuff that we're seeing where there's a lot of optimism kind of still hanging out, like all of a sudden that kind of goes away. Cause if you think about it, if, if all of a sudden you're clearly heading into a recession, uh, unemployment rate goes from three and a half you know, just flies back up into the fours and inflation is still like six, seven. That's, that's the situation where the fed all of a sudden is like, uh Oh, because it's really easy for the fed when, when one of their mandates is kind of like asleep to just go focus on the other. But whenever both mandates are going against them, you know, employment and inflation, that's when it gets really tough for them. And, and I would assume that's when it gets really tough for markets. And I, I think that's still ahead of us. Um, so I, I think anyone's kind of confused by this now. Like, okay, well, if if both of their mandates are becoming a problem and they have to kind of just sit there and watch it happen anyway, and markets are still doing this, then that would be completely crazy. But right now, I think it kind of makes sense because only one of their mandates is kind of pressuring them. Well, the other thing, too, that, that I keep a close eye on because, again, want to know where I'm wrong – um, we, we did some homework in the last couple of days, just looking at previous bear market rallies, looking at the way these certain things happen. And it was pretty remarkable. If you go back now, for those of you out there saying the tech NASDAQ's different this time, I agree with you. I don't think that I'm not calling for an 85% drop in the NASDAQ. Um, what is fascinating though, is a lot of the same attitudes. And I think you had to be around at the time to really remember it. There were these attitude. There was this attitude: is when the price comes back, buy it because nothing can stop this. The secular growth story is so big. Maybe you buy it twenty percent before the bottom, but just make some more. Buy some more when it drops another twenty percent because it's all just going up. The attitude, the confidence, the retail involvement. Um, we haven't seen anything in markets since twenty-two years ago. I mean, that's that's the last time you saw an environment similar to this. What I found striking is that that first move off the NASDAQ, and this was quick and dirty math, so I could be off a a little bit, but that first move down on the NASDAQ was almost a straight line. Very, very, very similar to what we saw earlier this year and 30% down, just like we saw earlier this year. The next bounce back rally was 30% off that bottom. So it clawed back what is that? Two thirds of its decline, but it bounced 30% off of that bottom. NASDAQ is currently 22%. I'm hearing a lot of the permable types say, oh, look at that bounce in the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ is no longer, I don't think is in traditional bear market terms. I don't think it's down 18% right now. Yeah. There you go. So now, so we're out of bear market territory. I'm ho- hearing all these bull c- guys out uh, the bottoms in. You got to buy. We're not in bear market territory anymore. Here it comes. Good times are here again. And I'm just sitting there going, 
boy, guys, that's a big leap of faith because right now this is com- this this is acting just like every other single single major stock market decline in history. You get that first real sharp negative one. You get a clawback. Same thing happened in twenty nine. Same thing happened in oh eight oh nine. Um, the, the confidence and exuberance of this back. And then the other one that you and I've been throwing in, and this for me is just the icing on the cake, the fed, right? As of right now, their hands are tied. I just, I just don't get the bullish thesis. I just don't see it anywhere. Is there anything else you think I'm missing? Let's, let's try to focus now, Chase, if we can on what can go right. Yeah, absolutely. So that's always really important. Um, so what I will say, and one of the reasons I was really bullish last year, was j- simply like household balance sheets are are solid. Yeah. Um, and and that's still the case. Now, obviously, those have eroded a lot in the last year or last six months, really, just because Fed policies made, made you know stocks go down, bonds go down. So sixty forty is having like a kind of a, a historic drawdown. I don't know um, who could have seen that coming. <laughs> Private investments are down. All of a sudden, real estate went from being up, you know, twenty percent year over year to being kind of like down all of a sudden in, in some of the hottest markets. Um, so like, when everyone looks at their wealth or their confidence in their wealth, like that, that is really deteriorated. So like, that's still out there. But if you just kind of look at the just a straight up household debt to GDP ratio, like or net worth versus history, those numbers are still solid. Um, so, or, or, or even like, uh, how much, you know, people are paying to, to kind of cover, cover their debt or cover their bills. Like all, all those ratios, they're still historically really good. Like the, the pandemic was like, that's such a weird recession where people got richer, um, which never happens, but it did during that one because of the enormous government response. So if this recession was, was shorter than I think it'll be, or more, more shallow than I think it'll be, which is always possible, of course, um, just the average person has kind of more money laying around than, than normal. And that could just drive a bigger bounce than we're used to coming out of a recession. Now, what I will say on that, though, is it, a lot of that is away from kind of that, that bottom like quartile. The bottom quartile, quintile, however you want to look at it, is really struggling. Inflation has hit, hit them hard. Um, and, and a lot of kind of incremental spending and, and, and demand, especially for commodities, comes from the, the bottom quartile. So them them struggling more like hurts like the, the you know the average billionaire is not going to buy more stuff than they were going to to begin with but but you know that someone making 40 grand or 20 grand a year like it's different for them um so but but oh, broadly what what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is from a, a potential for the consumer to get out and spend again and once inflation goes back down and kind of growth picks back up it, it's there um Especially if if there are people that are kind of well off right now, but they're just kind of hanging out and, and not spending much because inflation freaks them out, uh, you know, maybe they'll get back to it uh, once once this kind of blows over. And, and at that point, the great economy can kind of stay really strong, um, and the labor market will probably end this cycle tighter than we're used to as well. So, uh, if jobs and household balance sheets are better than we're used to coming out of a recession, then then the flip side of this is better than we expect, and Therefore, you know, kind of that discounting of what's ahead five years from now should maybe be better than you and I are kind of thinking of it at the moment. Here's another one on the concerning side, and I hear you there. Um, and I just said, let's focus on right. So <laughs> what's right? So now I'm going to throw another negative one at you. Um, now, this is a little bit more anecdotal, but but it's proven pretty accurate in the past. 
meaning um, in a lot of economic advances, this was certainly true in the tech bubble. This was certainly true in the real estate bubble. Um, and, and going back through economic history, you see this all over the place. That when you look typically in any economic expansion, there's one or a few leaders of that expansion, right? Usually it's a, you know, building expansion, natural resource expansion, technology, uh, technology type of expansion that when you want to know when the end of the party is look for when the leaders start sucking in their belts, right? Um, or as some say, you know, they're shoot, taking the generals out back and shooting them. Look for the leaders of that advance. And you're seeing tech layoffs and, and legitimate strife and legitimate financial pressure in technology that we really haven't seen since 2000, 2001, 2002. That seems to me to be a canary in the coal mine. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I agree 100%, and I, I think it's something that's getting overlooked. So if you look at the worst uh, housing market right now, it's, it's San Francisco. It's like that, that tells you a lot. I think if you just kind of look at venture, venture-backed companies, uh, private equity, the the pain there and the, and the reckoning there is, is I think it's worse than people realize at the moment. Um, and, I, and I think that's really important. Um, uh, you think about the people that work at some of these companies, they're not getting paid that great. Um, I, I have a good friend that just got offered a job at a, at a venture-backed uh, company pays terrible but you know they're like hey we're gonna give you stock options and you know that's gonna make you super rich when we ipo that's a great thing to tell people when things are good because they can just kind of dream about how much money they're gonna make in stock options so they'll take the crap pay but for that for that company that means they get to pay low wages and then that makes their numbers look better for their next round of funding whenever they're pitching themselves but if all of a sudden people kind of lose some faith in that ability to go public and make a bunch of money because this year's been horrible for ipos uh, then less people are going to, you know, less good people are going to take those jobs. They're going to have to let some staff go because they can't, you know, get new, new funding rounds or their new funding rounds are, we, we've seen some, some of the high flying unicorns that, you know, maybe they'll do a new funding round and it's like 60, 80% less than their previous funding round, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just horrible for, for these little private companies that, are, you know, are pre, kind of pre IPO stage, but that's something that's happening. Um, and I think this this is the kind of thing that we just all assume is like whatever that's just like a Silicon Valley problem. But I think these days it's become such a big deal. You think about all the all the institutional money that that has gone into those spaces. Um, if private equity and, and the kind of the venture back tech startup and, and and you know like public companies that are especially the kind of the younger ones that are have only known growth in their life cycles all start struggling mightily, then all of a sudden you have kind of a, a labor problem in really high income, you know, spaces, uh, which we, we've talked about. We talked, I think we talked about this last time I was on where you think about the passive inflows into equities. And so much of that is 401k money. And, and so much 401k money is, you know, white collar money. That's a lot of people that have programming jobs and it jobs. And, um, you know, they make a lot of money and it, it, your average truck driver probably doesn't have a huge 401k, although they may have last year. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, if a lot of those people lose their job, like all of a sudden that hits those 401ks, that that hits inflows, and this, and you can kind of at least imagine kind of a, a self-reinforcing uh, feedback loop th- there, where in in a way we haven't had to worry about since, like you say, like kind of the the, the turn of the century, if you will, um, that where tech startups and, and, and the private companies like become almost in a way like a macro problem 
nobody's thinking of those as a macro problem. This is like a cute thing to talk about. Like maybe we talk about the SoftBank having big problems and it's kind of funny, but it, it's not really funny if it becomes a macro problem and, and that's not impossible. So I think, I think you, you're paying attention to that as, as something that could be more important than everyone's thinking about it is definitely on point. Well, and the other thing that concerns me about it, really keeping an eye on a lot of these earnings reports, even with companies I don't follow, just trying to get a macro feel for the, for what's going on. Um, even the companies, we, there was one company, and, and I, I keep an eye on it as an indicator. I, I don't think I've ever owned it. I wish I would have several years ago, but the trade desk, and, and I'm just using this as, a, as, a, as an example. Uh, it's been one of the favorites of the compounder bros and, you know, buy stocks at any price. It's kind of one of those guys. De- decent company. But, but the reason I bring it up is because it had what were called blowout earnings. I'm reading through the details. Um, their growth rate is slipping. It's still pretty strong. They're growing 35% a year. Um, but their margins have significantly pulled back. That's the other thing I'm seeing. I'm seeing margins dropping on these tech companies pretty uniformly. Um, and that is that seems to be true with all the ones that we've been watching, regardless of whether they've seen big reductions in their growth rates or not. Um And that to me is another big tell because, you know, everybody looks at these tech companies. I shouldn't say everybody, but, but I think the market looks at these tech companies as just infinity and beyond. Um, If the people that, you know, if you you take the ad companies, right, you know, Facebook, Google, um, Facebook's probably not a great one because that's actually a pretty cheap stock. Um, And there's reasons for that. It's not a recommendation by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, Trade Desk is very much in that same boat. Um, I I don't know that there's a much more economically sensitive segment of the economy than advertising. And I don't care whether you do it on billboards or whether you do it online. And so with a lot of these companies, again, not trying to look at everything through a bearish lens. But if I see your growth rate slipping, but still pretty strong, but I see this uniform pullback in margins across the board that kind of gives me an intimation that we may be at some sort of saturation or end game point with a lot of these things too. And I throw cloud in the mix too. A lot of these business models that have been so successful, so many of these SaaS companies that have been so successful. One of the things that's always given me pause about these things, especially believing them, believing in them to the magnitude that the market does right with, with retail enthusiasm and insane multiples and all that kind of stuff um, is that, those there is no 45% margin that's ever lasted. Right? What did, what did Grantham refer to it? I think he said that their margins are the most mean reverting series of data in history. And it makes sense, right? It is it, 45% margins attract more competition, more competition equals lower price. And when the people that are paying for that advertisement, the people that are buying that advertising, when their margins are slipping and everything's slowing down, you can damn well bet that they're going to, they're going to pressure their suppliers. They're going to pressure the, the, the other companies that they're working with. Um, and to see margins slipping, right? Everybody's like, well, inflation, how, how much does inflation impact? I mean, think about it directly. How much does inflation impact a online advertising supplier like tra- the trade desk, right? It, it doesn't. I mean, it, it, those aren't the inputs. What it shows me is that their pricing power is eroding. What is your take on that? What is your take on slipping margins? Do you see that as a canary in the coal mine or is there another explanation? Yeah, I, I think I think what you've said 
you know, up to this point is on point. And like, like you say, if you have, if you have enormous margins, the way these companies have, I mean, you're just inviting, you know, oversaturation at some point in the future. And, and I think, I think we're, maybe we're not at that yet, but we, we certainly have a lot more people in, in that space. Um, if you look at all the, all the money that's been raised in the venture world for software, it's enormous. So, oh. so the, the chances that we have too much capacity and, in advertising and in software, especially you know as the as a service model, um, I think it's significant. Um, and if you're kind of a smaller company, I, so I, th- I don't. This may be a controversial take, but I think sometimes advertising for for some firms is more of kind of a luxury than a need. Um, mm. You need to do it. You need to do it at, on some level, but it doesn't mean you have to go through some some fancy. Uh, Silicon Valley, you know, platform to go push out a bunch of advertising. It's kind of like a, like you're trying to keep up with the Joneses. So you want to go advertise the way everyone else does through like the, some fancy platforms on the internet. Um, but when things get tough, I think some people think, oh, well, no one's going to pull back from advertising. But I think <laughs> a lot of people will pull back from advertising, especially with, you know, it's kind of these over, overpriced web-based platforms that, especially middlemen that are just there to kind of extract rent before they put you on some different internet platform. Um, so I, I do think a lot of that's vulnerable. Um, and typically what, what worked in the last cycle doesn't work great in the next cycle. Um, and you, you look at like <laughs> kind of what, what has happened with energy prices. I always kind of view the cyclical industries like, like extractive industries as kind of margin thieves, like they will let you have a lot of margins if you're a big growth industry. And then at some point, just because of no, kind of normal cyclical factors, they kind of step back in and they steal the margins from those kinds of companies because they, they just kind of suck the air out of, out of the economy. They suck the air out of the room. They take the margins, essentially. And, and we see that kind of now with, with, with all of a sudden the, the profits that we're, we're seeing in, in, say, oil companies. So I think even from that standpoint, the, the companies that are really you know hoovering up those inflation dollars – Part of the part of the losers from that standpoint are going to be something like people that are selling ads on the internet, or or selling you know some some space to 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 stick your your emoticons and your emojis and your music or whatever. Um, and so I I think I think that's that's definitely something something that is not necessarily just going to get fixed because the the Fed stops raising rates. Yeah. No. I I yeah. I can't I can't see that. So I mean. Let me get this straight. So if we were to sum up where we could be wrong and where the bullish side of this is, basically what you've got to be betting on is the Fed flawlessly threading the needle here, engineering a soft landing. Then you'd have to be advocating for a rate pullback. Uh, What am I missing here? Um, (laughs) You... You need to see the dollar pull back substantially. Um, I see this is my problem. I start going down the list, and I can't get there. Um, the other side of it that you and I could probably agree on is that you know there are times that are similar. I think this is unlike any other market anybody's ever navigated before. So I mean that that to me is the one thing that gives me pause. Um, just because you have even if the Fed is on the sidelines. I think now more than at any other time in history, certainly in my career when I've been aware of it, 
I think that the average guy is more aware and confident in the specter of the Fed than at any other time in investing. I, I think if you did a poll of how many people who consider themselves investors, either professionally or retail or whatever, I, I think a higher, a, a substantially higher percentage of people understand who the Fed is than at any other time in history. And I honestly think that threat of just another river of printed dollars, I, I honestly think that that's, you know, maybe not for the individual investor. He might have some half-cocked idea why he loves it. I mean, for God's sakes, people are still throwing money at AMC, right? So you can't, you know, you can't fix stupid. Um you know, and, and I will say that I, I got in a back and forth with the guy and I wasn't I wasn't trying to be a jerk to him. But I just said, listen, your whole argument is idiotic. This is complete nonsense. Um, and I go, just sell. Just get out. Don't you don't you know, you don't need to die on this hill. Um, and I was com- instantly told how little I knew and all that kind of stuff. Um, even even Mark Cahotis, which watching him get behind that AMC push was bizarre. But even he's turn coded on that now. So. Um, but so you can't, you can't fix stupid, but, but I do think that right now, one of the only things floating equity markets is still it. And maybe the story isn't there because you know, the fed is on the sidelines, but I just can't get over believing that so much of this, just, Oh, get in there and buy. Even for those that don't realize it, I feel like it's like a Pavlovian response when things are down And I don't think what I think that this new generation of investors has told themselves, well, you get in there and buy because now things are cheap when when things aren't cheap. This is still an extraordinarily expensive market, especially when you look at earnings trajectory and interest rates and all those other things. But, um, you know, I I, I, I just I I still I, I think what is giving it this upward surge and giving investors confidence is this specter of the Fed. You know, that, that, like I said, even the people that don't think they believe in the Fed, I think they do. I think that's why they're in there buying stocks. Nothing can go wrong. Um, and like you and I said, maybe the Fed pivots. Maybe they turn around and start cutting again. My question is, is how bad do things have to get? And I think that you and I both agree that they'd have to get pretty bad or the Fed's. And I think the Fed's credibility is probably as tattered as it's ever been at this point. Maybe not. Maybe it was worse in the 70s. I think Carter took the majority of that. Um, but you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I just, I just can't, I just can't get away from pulling back and looking at things on more of a micro view and looking at different sectors and talking to different clients that own businesses and the challenges they're up against and all these other kind of things. Um, that I, I, yeah, I mean, we, I can sit here and try to project and think and pretend about ways that this ends up positive. I just don't see it, Chase. The other part of it is this. Um, you know, you and I have spoken about this before, but here's here's another question I've got. You know, one of the reasons that we all held our noses and 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 one of the main I don't know if you'd say it, one of the one of the main arguments or one of the uh, the main supporters if you will of of extraordinarily high tech valuations. And, and that of the market in general, I remember one of the biggest and, and, and hey, and there's some there's some validity to this. Um, but, you know, I think that what the market get up to at the peak, I want to say 210, 220 times GDP, something like that market cap to GDP, you know, which the previous peaks in, in the Great Depression and the tech boom were like, you know, 129 and 134 or something like that. 
you know, so massive new valuations. And one of the one of the ways that that was justified was, well, back then, those companies represented uh, business in the United States. Now these are global companies. Right. So those old rules don't apply um, as uncertain, as nasty as things look here in the United States. God, they look even worse overseas, don't they? It, it depends. Um, there, there are definitely some places in Asia that look great right now. They're, they don't have the inflation problem. Where? Uh, Vietnam. Like, so I'm writing my, my current Emerald, uh, my monthly report on, on Vietnam. They, they have low inflation. They keep kind of stealing business from, from China. Um, but, but there are a lot of pockets of Asia that don't have much inflation right now, and, and their growth is still positive. Um, how are they dealing are, with how are they dealing with the double whammy of the dollar and uh, commodity prices? Somehow, amazingly well. It, it's it, it is exactly why I'm writing about it is because so if you look at most of the world, especially especially the developed world, so the, so really we can kind of bug, kind of break this up to like the developed world's all getting smashed because uh, Europe obviously has insane inflation because of energy. Um, the U.S. We, I mean, we've beaten that to death. So we know where that is. But like, equity markets in Latin America have have beaten the U.S. Almost all of them this year. And then same with same with a lot of Asia. So it's weird because we're kind of used to China doing great and the rest of Asia is kind of being boring. But this year, you have especially emerging Asia, Southeast Asia doing well, and then China not doing very very great this year. Um, and it's interesting. A lot of it is just the fact that domestically, like they have growing middle classes. So they have kind of new bases of consumption to go along with all the manufacturing and the exports to kind of the, the rich world. Um, but is yeah, it, like, Chase, could it be the, could, so for the, for the Asian companies specifically, could one of the reasons that they're holding up so well be that business they're stealing from China and the fact that that's causing an inflow of dollars? Yeah, I mean that, that's that's certainly possible. That's a real head scratcher to me. I mean, there's got to be places that are getting absolutely murdered in EM or, or in emerging markets. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, if you if you look at some of the like Pakistan, like they're having an energy crisis, a dollar crisis. Um, so I mean, they've they've gotten smashed. If, uh, some of the places that are just incredibly dependent on on imports for food and energy, like they're they're having a lot of problems, but. There are definitely some significant pockets, especially I would say Southeast Asia, um, that that have been pretty impressive. And, and, and going back to like you, you were talking earlier about like oh well like some of these some of these things we're talking about might make the dollar fall and then okay maybe that like provides some relief to the U.S. But my take on that is okay if the dollar starts falling apart like of course like there there would be plenty of good things for the U.S. for that. But what that does for some of these places in the rest of the world is 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 going to be a lot more important. So the the, the countries in, in Southeast Asia, um, Latin America that have just kind of you know been pinned down by the dollar being so strong, just you really you can just think of it as food and energy importers, especially like all of a sudden they're able to breathe and they can they can have some really impressive runs. Hmm. Um, okay. So I, w- what about the other one that I've been looking about? Uh, or and we talked about this a little bit last week. Um. China, um, can, can you get, unless things really open up in China, like you said, we were having a conversation this morning and you were saying what's crazy about China is they're really stimulating and it's like they're pushing on a string. 
um, kind of summarize that conversation, if you will. And again, that fits into my thesis because that's another head scratcher to me. Cause I'm like, how can you get back to valuations or stock levels without China going great guns? I, I just don't, I just, that that's another one in, to me that is just kind of dumbfounding. Yeah. And rightfully so they've driven so much, uh, such a, such a high percentage of global growth in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And all of a sudden, they're not really growing anymore. Um, they're the cheap labor they've essentially exported to the whole world. Like that, that came up. Their their demographics have have turned. Like their working age population is shrinking. Like so much of what made them special for the last two or three decades is is kind of over. Um, and that's going to create a lot of problems. Uh, as far as that pushing on a string, like really, it's just kind of the private sector is just not really reacting to policy the way they used to. The Chinese government's made it really clear that they're they're done with this like massive stimulus and just like build whatever, who cares? Like let's just get some growth out of this thing. They've they've they're taking a more balanced approach. They want their growth to be in certain sectors, not in others. They don't want it to just be nothing but infrastructure or, you know, building more apartment buildings. Um they've really cracked down on, on property and, and um they've they've cracked down on local government debt issuance especially some of the, the stuff they would do with uh, kind of like off-balance sheet. So all of a sudden, like kind of the debt bubble is, 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 is no longer inflating, and it might even kind of be deflating. Um, the average Chinese person saved most of their money in, in housing, and all of a sudden that's not a safe place to go. So people have, have kind, of, kind of clammed up. They're not really spending. They're not really investing. And obviously whenever you get in a situation like that, uh, it's very bad. You, you have a lot of uh, uncertainty because of, of the zero COVID. You had the government cracking down on tech and then kind of saying, oh, no, we like tech, and then cracking down on tech again all within the last six months. So they've they've introduced a lot of uncertainty within their own economy, and, and naturally the response from the private sector has been a problem. Um, so they, for them to kind of really right the ship, they're, A, they have to stimulate, but then they have to make sure that the – kind of ability for that stimulus to f- actually feed all the way through into the real economy through the private sector is there. And that means you have to give people confidence that they can do something with the, the stimulus. And at the moment, that that's just not the case. Have you ever seen a more opaque macro picture than the one we're currently looking at? No. And and, and so you're saying like, hey, like what, 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 where can we be wrong? And, and the number one place we can be wrong to me is this. It's just because it is so opaque, because we had such extremes with the data and going terrible in 2020 and then, then phenomenal in 2021, like in, in a lot of ways here in 2022, we're still trying to kind of find our footing. Like where's reality? Because you had basically a, a, a two month depression and then you had like a year long boom. And now like you're trying to figure out where you really are like within this whole thing. So if nothing else, the, the humility required comes straight from the fact that, like, hey, none of us have ever been through anything even remotely like what we're seeing right now. And, and that just, just on its own requires humility. And, and that humility means, like, hey, things could be a lot better than they look. And they could be tricking a lot of the data that I look at. You know, all these leading indicators that I kind of lean on that have been right for 50 years. Like, hey, may, maybe, like, the terrible data and the great data kind of mess with them. That, well, it, it, yeah, and it goes back to what you and I were saying about the yield curve. And one of the things, it, it's something I pay attention to. Um, and yet one of my employees was going off on the yield curve. He goes, it has to be going into recession. I looked at him and I said, listen, 
Look at the Fed's balance sheet as a percentage of the overall economy and tell me the last time it looked like that. Second of all, um, what impact does that have on the yield curve? I don't know, but it has an impact. So therefore, could the yield curve be telling us exactly what it's been telling us in the past? Yeah, it could. Is it possible that it's not? Absolutely. Right? I mean, there's never been more involvement with central banks and the purchasing of government securities, which has a direct impact on the yield curve, right? So It's funny. I said the same thing in 2018, 19, whenever it inverted. Yep, I remember that. It's still hit. We still had the recession. It was a weird one, but but we did still have it. You're right. You're right. But I I agree. I mean, it's possible that... Well, here's and here's here's another thing, Chase, because I think you and I can go back to that 2019, and I don't think that it, you and I have not spoken about this off air or on there. But there was another thought that I was thinking about the other day. If you put if you go back to 2019, things were going well in the economy. Virtually everything you looked at, however, a lot of leading indicators at that point were turning down. It looked like things were running out of steam going into 2020. So one of the thoughts I had is, will we look back on this and see this as a two and a half to three year anomaly that was caused by the extraordinary, you know, the extraordinary event that was COVID and everything that resulted from that. And then as things return back to even because all of the things that were stretched at the end of 2019, they're more stretched now, right? Valuations are crazier. Uh, There were like no bankruptcies for two years, basically. Right. Um, Market valuations in general, the NASDAQ is still trading, even after the hit, is still trading at a 40% uh, premium to where it was at the end of 2019, if I'm not not mistaken. I think it was right around like 8,200 or something like that. Um, And I just kind of think, well, as soon as this dies down, maybe that's a natural trajectory, too, to kind of resume where we were. Yeah. and again, it's just, you know, for instance, if and I'm hearing a lot of these people say, oh, the worst is over. This is the start, the start of a new bull market. Boy, that would be interesting because a new bull market has never started with real estate at record highs in terms of ownership cost. Right. Uh, a new bull market has never started with close to peak margins where, you, you know, margins are coming down and profits are coming down. But, you know, it, it, I, but again, in this environment, I guess you can't you can't count it out. Right. Yeah, exactly. I there's so many things that I think there's there's kind of no way, but then I kind of take a step back and think, well, you know, things are so weird that you, you never know. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, we're, we're so to sum this up. Okay, a lot of unknowns out there. Got to be careful. Keep your head on a swivel. But what we're looking at right now, in terms of his, not reading into it, not trying to put our own spin on it. If you're just looking at data outside of labor data, which we've discussed at length, things don't look good. Is that fair? That is very fair. They actually look very bad. Okay. Okay. And which probably means the market's going to double in the next three years, right? <laughs> Typically, whenever things look bad on leading, leading indicators and you have growth and inflation both slowing, what has essentially always happened in that environment is stocks go down. Like that. that's just... That's the reality. That doesn't mean they have to this time, but but the reality is that's what typically happens. Um, especially, I would say, if the Fed can't quickly come to the rescue, um, and and right now they can't. That doesn't mean you know three months from now they can't, but right now they can't. So, yeah, that that is where we're at. Well, I appreciate. I'm, I, I I tell you what, man, I feel very fortunate to have you on my team to make sense of all this because kind of feel like the, an insane man in in the side room tying all the strings together you know you put look back and there's just strings all over the wall kind of like your be- beautiful mind exercise and 
you bring uh, you bring some sanity and some peace to that practice. So I really appreciate it. And uh, as always, uh, must follow if you I'm sure all of our listeners do. But at Pinecone Macro on Twitter, go to pinecone.macro.com. Um, and then I think what's what's the countdown? Where are we at to give about 30 weeks until you join us full time? Yeah, something like that. Uh, All right. Not that we're counting down or anything. I'll I'll be out there in the spring, so it's coming up quick. We're almost to fall, right? Yeah, and like I was telling you, man, it's boat shopping time. we got to start looking for boats here. I I, I cannot (laughs) wait. (laughs) All right, pal. Thanks, as always, for joining us, and thank you guys for listening. Hopefully this was helpful. Hopefully it it answered a lot of the questions. We just thought, thought it was pertinent. I'll probably air a segment of this on the show this Friday. Uh, but anyway, hope you guys have a great week. As always, we'll be running the show as normal this Friday, and then we'll be back the following week as normal. So have a great week, and we'll see you on Friday, and then the following Friday as well. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.